One of, the, one of the common tropes of Saturday morning cartoons that always worked for me was the, was the wrong parachute bit or the bad parachute bit. I laughed every time. I Bugs Bunny and, and Yosemite Sam would be in a plane that was going down. Sam, the rootinest, tootinest, shootinest cowboy that ever came across the Rio Grande, uh, grabbed what he thought was the only parachute. He would jump out, but when he pulled the ripcord, like silverware would come flying out of his parachute, right? Or Wiley Coyote was finally going to be prepared for the fall off the cliff that we all knew was coming. He had a parachute. The fall comes, he pulls the ripcord, and an anvil floats out, right? Somehow against the laws of physics. It was always a story, an example of someone who had gotten himself into a situation through his own bad decisions, stuff he shouldn't have been doing, and then the solution he decided upon was somehow even worse than the original problem. As we begin 2 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to see a slightly more gory version of that story. Where we pick up this morning as the curtain rises on 2 Samuel, Israel is, is emerging from something of a small civil war. It wasn't like two halves of the nation fighting, but two families fighting for control of that nation. King Saul, who's been dead for a while now in our story, his family uh, was led by his military commander named Abner, and Abner set up Saul's son Ishbosheth as uh, king over the northern tribes of Israel, who refused to accept David as king. David is king over just the tribe of Judah, where we pick up. And as we open this morning, Abner, the commander of the, the northern tribes, he was, has been murdered in Hebron, in David's capital in Judah. Before he died, he, he told the elders of the tribes of Israel, the northern tribes who didn't accept David, to go accept David as king. And so where we pick up this morning, Ishbosheth, that figurehead king, like his civil war is, all, is just basically over. And all those folks up there are in a really bad situation because they've been on the, lo- the wrong side, the losing end of a war. And today's passage is mainly going to be about how two men we've never met before and we'll never meet again, how they settle on a really bad solution to the problem they think they have. Let's read our passage. We're going to read all of 1 Samuel chapter 4. It's not that long. If I turn my thing on here, there we go. 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all of Israel was disturbed. Saul's son had two men who were commanders of bands. The name of the one was something like Ba'anah, and the name of the other was Rechab or Rechab. We'll call them Bana and Rechab today. Sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, of the sons of Benjamin, for Be'eroth is also considered part of Benjamin and the Be'erothites, 
Beherathites fled to Gitaim and have been aliens there until this day. Verse 4. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the report of Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And um, his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that in her hurry to flee, uh, he fell and he became lame. And this youngster's name was Mephibosheth. Verse 5. So, those sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, Rechab and Bena, they departed and came to the house of Ishbosheth in the heart of the day while he was taking his midday rest. They came uh, to the middle of the house as if to get wheat, and they struck him in the belly, and Rechab and Bena, his brother, escaped. Now, when they came into the house, as Mephibosheth was lying on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and killed him and beheaded him. And they took his head and traveled by way of Arabah all night. Then they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to David the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. Thus the Lord has given you, my Lord the king, vengeance this day. On Saul and on his descendants, verse 9. David answered Rechab and Bena, his brother, sons of Rimon the Beerothite, and said to them, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one guy told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for that good news. How much more... When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? Then David commanded the young men, and they killed Bena and Rechab, and cut off their hands and feet and hung them up beside the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the grave of Abner in Hebron. There's our story. We start as we should in verse 1, which is the record of how King Ishbosheth specifically, but all of those northern tribes who don't support David, it's the record of how all of them responded or reacted when they learned that Abner, their real leader, had been murdered in Hebron. We're told that Ishbosheth, most of our uh, translations say something like this, that uh, Ishbosheth was very disheartened or he lost courage. Doesn't your Bible say something like that? It's a good example of Hebrew is a very pictorial language. It sometimes just describes something and we have to gather what it means. What it says here is that when Ishbosheth heard that Abner has died, his hands dropped. Can't you see what that means? He just... He lost heart. He knows, like our little rebellion, or not really rebellion, but our, our little effort to keep David from becoming king, it wasn't going well while Abner was alive. We have no hope now. But he's not the only one who is disheartened, who is scared. All of those northern tribes became very afraid. And it's, it's not... Difficult to understand why. In, in the history of the world, 
regime change was always incredibly bloody. Um, it's not like in those days, um, somebody lost an election, they cleaned out their office, and then the new guy moved in. That's not the way regime change worked. Whatever king or ruler got deposed, if he, he was usually killed, imprisoned, exiled, but then all of the ones, people who supported him would be killed or exiled in droves. And so when people up north here, man, they murdered Abner. Who's next? Is anyone safe? What's going to happen? It's easy to understand their anxiety. But, but, do those folks up there actually have the problem they're afraid that they have? Does David want to kill them all? No, they actually don't have a problem. David didn't want to kill Abner. He didn't want to kill Saul, even when Saul was constantly trying to kill him. He certainly doesn't want to go on any rampage killing folks up north. They think they have a problem they don't actually have. And nobody told Bena and Rechab that they don't have a problem. We meet really our two main characters in this passage. We meet them in verse 2 and verse 3. We're told a couple things about them, and it's kind of confusing. We're told in, in most uh, translations that they were leaders of bands. They weren't drum majors. That's not, what that, that's not what that means. They were, in the ancient world, it was very common for countries to fund their operations by just stealing stuff from neighboring people. That's what these guys did. They were, they were leaders of almost like pirates, raiding bands, because Ishbosheth wanted to, like all other countries, would wanted to, to fund his government by stealing stuff from neighboring people. Now, we've come a long ways, right, in our advanced. We, we now, our governments fund themselves by stealing stuff from their own people, which is, that's, that's progress, kids, is what that is. But that's a story for a different, different day. Uh, we're also told some confusing geographical information. These guys are from uh, Beeroth. And the original audience might go, well, wait a minute, how can you be from Beeroth but still be a Benjamite? Because Beeroth wasn't in Benjamin and most of the Beerothites live someplace else now. Uh, most people who lived in those places originally came from Benjamin, which is Saul's tribe, which is Ishbosheth's tribe. So there's just a little note there that says they're, they're from a different part of the country, but they always supported Saul and Ishbosheth. That's all we need to know. Now, speaking of stuff we don't really need to know, verse 4 is actually a note for later. We won't need this information today. Verse, this chapter is about the death of, Ish, uh, of Ishbosheth. But our author wants us to know that even when Ishbosheth dies today, the line of Saul won't be completely gone. Because Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, he had a son. So Saul's got a grandson that's still alive. That's what this note is here for. 
We're told he was, he was crippled in both legs. Then we are told how that happened when uh, this kid, his name is Mephibosheth. Again, if you need boys' names, just write that one down, save it for later. Mephibosheth was just five when his daddy got killed in that battle we read about some time ago. Panic ensued where they lived. Uh, some, uh, some nurse picked him up in, a, in their f- hurry to flee. He probably suffered some sort of spinal injury or something, and so his legs didn't work right after that. Save that for later. We'll learn more about Mephibosheth at a different time. Back to our story, though. In verses 5 through 7, we read about the bad solution these two thugs, Bena and Rechab, come up with to deal with their perceived problem. Um, Abner's been murdered in Hebron. The civil war is over. They decide, man, we were on the losing side. Surely David is going to come up here and, and try to get rid of us too. We better figure out some way to um, engender ourselves to David, right? This is the really bad parachute they plan when they feel like their plane is going down. They go to um, Ishbosheth's compound mansion during siesta time. They come up with a lie for why they would be that close to his inner rooms. They say they're going to like the storehouse, maybe to get uh, rations for their men or something. But what they're really there for is they know that their king takes naps at this time. They sneak into his chambers. Um, What we learn is they stab him in the guts while he's sleeping, and then they decapitate him. It is, uh, it's a little bit confusing. It seems like we get two different stories of what happened to him. It seems like in one story he gets stabbed in the guts and in the other story he gets decapitated. What happens here is uh, something that happens in Hebrew a lot. It's all over the Old Testament. We get a general statement of something that happened and then later we get more details. It just happened in verse 4. Mephibosheth uh, was a son that was crippled in his legs. Then we get more information about how that happened. If you go to the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 1, you'll read that God made mankind in his own image. Then you turn to chapter 2, and you don't get a different story. You get more information about the original story. Hebrew does this a lot. Here's what happened. They snuck in, they stabbed him in the belly, they cut his head off. That's the parachute they grabbed when they feel like their plane is going down. In verse 8, these two, after taking a desolate path to Hebron where David lives, so that they're not caught with Ishbosheth's head, um, they're ready for their big reveal before King David. They get an, an audience with the king. This is their moment. Man, isn't David going to be happy with us? Wait till he sees what we've done for him. This, they, they think this, this is the parachute that's going to float them safely to the ground. They pull out Ishbosheth's head. And here's what they say Look or behold or check this out, David. The head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy. The one who is trying to kill you. We killed him first. And then they say, Yahweh, or the Lord, 
has granted vengeance to you, David, this day against the house of Saul and his descendants. They say, they hold up a severed head and say, look what God has done. Aren't you blessed to have servants like us who will save you from all of your troubles? That's what they say. The rest of the passage is David, how David responds to these two knuckleheads. Um, David treats them extremely violently. Don't let what David does distract you for completely from what David says. Because what he says to them is the explanation for why he does what he does. Here's what David says down at the bottom of the screen, verse 9. David says, as surely as Yahweh lives, the one who has delivered my life from all of its adversity. And I'm going to stop right there. Do you see the contrast in what David says about God and what these two idiots have just said about God? They just held up a severed head and said, look what God has blessed you with this day. Aren't you lucky to have servants like us to save you from the ones who are trying to get you. David says, I've got someone who saves me from all of life's adversity. And he's slightly above your pay grade. He says, as surely as God lives, he's the one who saves me from adversity. This is David saying, I don't need hired henchmen. I don't need hired thugs who will do all the dirty work so I can keep my hands clean. It's not the way this government's going to run. All I need to do is consistently serve the one who has always been all I need. God's got my back. Thank you very much. I've been in about a thousand tighter spots than this. I mean, the northern tribes of Israel are a toothless enemy at this point. David says, I've been in way tighter spots than this. And I didn't need henchmen to get me out of those because I have the Lord. Then in verse 10, David's going to tell old Starsky and Hutch here a story. He tells them a story of the time someone else thought he was bringing good news. If you were here at the beginning of 2 Samuel, you know this story. There was a time when Saul and Jonathan had just been killed and this young Amalekite was there and found, saw the body and he stole Saul's crown and like armband. And remember that story? And he runs to David and thinks, oh man, I'll, I can make hay with this story. He comes to David and tells him the good news. Saul is dead and then he makes this part up and he says, I'm the one that killed him. David tells these two guys, Laurel and Hardy here, the, this story. And then David says, last time someone brought me this kind of good news, I killed that dude. Can you imagine the look on Abbott and Costello's faces there? I'm out of, I'm out of uh, examples of pairs. Can you imagine the look on their faces when David says that? This is the moment they've pulled the ripcord and like the picnic supplies start flying out of their, out of their parachute pack. They know they are in trouble. David 
calls them wicked men who killed. This translation says an innocent man, a righteous man. It just says you killed someone who didn't deserve to die and you did it in his house, in his bed. If I killed that last guy, what makes you think I'm not about to kill you? And so David issues orders for that to happen. And he makes a terrible example out of the bodies of these two men. Now, David is the king. God has given governments the the power of the sword. But here's what David is doing. David, same thing he was doing in last week's passage. This is brutal. But here's what David is doing. David wants to make perfectly clear my administration is not going to re, uh, resort to cronyism. I am not a king who, I'm not going to applaud these guys for killing my enemies. They killed my enemy, but they, no, like no trial. No, this, is, this was awful. I want everyone to know my administration is going to be about justice more than my own selfish interests. David just continues uh, over and over to make that perfectly clear. That's our story. What could we possibly learn today from an extremely violent 3,000-year-old story like that? For sure, we can all agree that Bena and Rechab are the bad guys, right? Right? We don't want to be like those two men, right? But I think we better try to find a better lesson than like don't sneak into a world leader's bedroom, stab him in the guts, and cut his head off. Okay? Although that is sound advice. Right? If you feel like you need to write that down, write it down. But I think for the rest of our time this morning, what I like to do is look kind of underneath their decisions at the bad decisions they made that became the seeds of their old, that really bad decision. You know what I mean? What mistakes in their thinking did they make that led them to make terrible mistakes? And when we start thinking about this passage that way, I think we find I am prone to be like Bena and Rechab. The same bad thinking, the same stinking thinking that led those guys down the path to somewhere terrible, we can make those mistakes even if we keep ourselves from something really, really bad. So here's three things, three warnings or lessons from this passage and the thinking of Bena and Rechab. First, Beware of anxiety and the perceived problem. Beware of anxiety and the perceived problem. At the very beginning of this chapter, uh, when news spread into those northern tribes that didn't accept David as their king, when, when news began to travel up there that Abner had been murdered, what started to happen inside of all those people? They got really scared. Now, is that logical and reasonable for people in the ancient world who had just supported 
the wrong side of a civil war to be scared? Of course. It's not that their fear was unreasonable. It's not like they were crazy or stupid to have anxiety. But what started to happen is they started to get controlled by a problem they didn't have yet. And boy, boy, can we do that or what? They didn't have the problem they imagined they had. How many times do we create more stress for ourselves? How many times do we create more trouble, more complications, and more problems by taking actions to stave off Problems we think we might have, but we really don't. I'm for sure not saying, please don't hear me saying that we should live without foresight, that we, sh- that we should not plan for the future. Don't, don't hear me saying any of that stuff. But I am saying, just because we can imagine a scenario playing out, Just because it makes perfect logical sense, given what I know right now, I can see things headed in this direction. That doesn't mean there is truth in the scenario that I have imagined and predicted. We all have a scenario generator in our brain and in our mind. You know that? I've got a a very active one. I can imagine some, some real doozies. But it's not a truth generator. Do you know that? And if we're not careful and really intentional, it's really easy to start getting controlled, having our behaviors controlled by problems we don't have. Anybody? And when we get there, do you know we are, we're two steps away from what should be controlling our behavior. You know that? When we are controlled, when I am controlled by a scenario, because I know, I know what he's thinking, and when he thinks that, he's probably going to say this. When he says that, holy smoke, she's going to do this thing, right? I've got this whole thing. I know, and then I start uh, uh, doing things. I'm having my behavior controlled by a problem I don't have yet. The guy on YouTube, though, has told me this is coming. When, I, when my behavior begins to be controlled by situations that I don't even have yet, I'm two steps away from what should control my behavior because as Christians, we're not even supposed to have our behavior controlled by what actually is happening. Do you know that? As a Christian, what is supposed to control our behavior? What is supposed to compel the actions of our lives? The love of Christ, Paul said, compels me. Opportunities to display His grace are what control me. His glory and what benefits His name, that's what's supposed to control me. That's like dead sinner. So, not only we're we not supposed to be controlled by the circumstances that do happen, we're darn sure not supposed to be controlled by stuff that hasn't yet even happened. 
The saddest part of this story we just read are the two bad guys put this awful plot into motion to defeat a problem they don't even have. And we don't want to be like Bina and Rachab. So, what we constantly need to work to ask ourselves, to say to our hearts, instead of, well, what, what's going to happen if that happens? Instead of questions like that, questions like, what would glorify the Lord given what I know right now, right? How can I make much? How do I have an opportunity to show the grace of God to someone else given what is happening right now? Now, are there ways to be wise and plan for the future? And uh, yes, 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 yes. But beware of anxiety and the perceived, the predicted, the anticipated problem. My scenario generator is not a truth generator and I shouldn't live as if it is. Okay, second. We need to be careful with look what God allowed theology. Look what God allows theology. In this story, uh, Bena and Rechab, they murder, they behead Ishbosheth, they go to David, they hold his head up. And do you remember what they say? Look what God has done. Look what God has allowed. Look at this great blessing God has given you this day. Now, did God allow these two to kill Ishbosheth? Apparently so, because it happened. But we have to be really careful when we live by, well, look what God allowed. It's got to be okay. Look what God has given. Look what God has blessed me with. Look at this opportunity. There's a difference between the, the sovereign will of God and the revealed will of God. The sovereign will of God just means this. There is nothing that will ever happen that God has not allowed to happen. But that's not the same thing as saying God signs off on it as being good, as being okay. The revealed will of God, God has collected, preserved, and revealed to us things that he says are best and things that he says are wrong. And God often allows things to happen that aren't best that are wrong. Isn't that true? So we have to be very careful with, well, God allowed it, sort of theology. I'll give you some examples. Um, first, it is impossible. It is impossible for us as human beings when we are presented with something new it's impossible at times for us to tell the difference between a blessing and a temptation. Do you know that? It's impossible to tell the difference between a blessing and a temptation. So, I've been blessed with a new amount of money, a new relationship, 
a new group of friends, a new area of success, a new area of interest. How do I know? Is that a blessing God has given to me for my joy? Or is that a temptation from my enemy that I might turn something into an idol? How do I know? When we are presented with it, if it's not something that is obviously sin, we can't tell. And just because it is allowed to come into our lives gives us no clue. There is a way to know while we walk through those things, whether this has been, this is a temptation or a blessing though. Here's how you tell. Um, let's say you have gotten a, 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 a new opportunity to make more money. Is that a blessing or is that a temptation? I don't know. But as I walk through that, what does that new, what does that new money do inside of me? What does it make me want? Does it just make me want more of what I already have? Does it make me uh, want to make more of me? Or do I, have a, do I have a spirit of thankfulness and a desire to see God glorified with what of his that he has given me? It can be either. And by the way, it is just as easy to be obsessed with money when we don't have much as when we have lots. So I'm not, uh, I'm not talking to any specific income group here. How about this one? I've been, uh, someone's you know, been lonely. They've wanted someone else. So they, they finally have a new relationship. Is that a blessing from God for their joy? Or is that a temptation? I don't know. Here's how you tell when you walk through that relationship. As I walk through that relationship, does that relationship feed my love and desire for the glory of the Lord? That new group of friends, that new area of success, we could do this with every single one of them. As I walk through those things, do I feel like I'm walking with the Lord through that thing? Or do I, if I'm honest, do I feel like I kind of have to pretend God is on vacation while I'm pursuing this new thing? Do I have to pretend like he really does? Do I have to compartmentalize him out of this thing? Kind of give him the stiff arm? Like, I'll see you Sunday, God. Because whatever the thing is, if it becomes a wedge but in my closeness to the Lord and my desire to see his, him glorified in my life, it ain't good, even though you can't go to a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not. Um, alcohol would be a good example here. Um, it is true, wine and strong drink are mentioned about 70 times in the Bible, and it's got alcohol in it every single time. It just does. Um, Ecclesiastes teaches, drink your wine with a merry heart. Psalm 104 says, God gives wine to gladden the heart of men. 
It's in there. Jesus, at a wedding, he turned water into actual wine, and it wasn't just grape juice for people to drink. Combine that with, um, over and over the Bible urges believers to, to get together, to eat together. Something that's sort of fallen out of favor, I think, to our, to our shame a bit. But, so, if there is a group of Christians who get together, they have a nice pan of lasagna, um, they have some wine during that meal, and the conversation honors and glorifies the Lord. The encouragement honors and glorifies the Lord. The people leave there wanting. We should do this more often with brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we encourage one another? How do we spur one another on to love and good works? They can leave that meal having more of that, and then I have no problem what was served in the glasses. However, if the same group of people any time the wine comes out, that becomes the focus. Um, when we drink, I am less united with my spouse, less concerned with the things of the Lord, more likely to say things and do things God in his revealed will has told me is not my best. If the next morning I feel like I have to avoid God and other people I love, deceive them about where I was, what I did, then I don't care that you can't find a verse that says thou shalt not drink. What was happening was not good. Is this a blessing or is this a temptation? I don't know, but here's what I do know. If I say, well, look what God allows is my starting point. I'm on very thin ice before I ever get started. Does what he has let into, allowed into my life, does it stir up within me my affection for Christ? Or does it make it more likely that I'm giving him the stiff arm? That's how I tell if I've got a, a temptation or a blessing on my hands. Finally, from this passage, we learn that sin makes a lousy parachute. In the story, Bena and Rechab, uh, they put themselves on a path that was different from what God would say is best. God wanted David to be king. They were fighting against that. So when they're fighting against David, they're fighting against God. So they were on a path God didn't want them on. And then they did decide, wait a second, we better get back on the David path. But they decided to get there like one last big sin and then we're going straight. Sin makes a lousy parachute. Sin is a terrible life raft. Never ask sin to do for you what your Savior does for you. And that sounds like ridiculous, but we do this all the time. I don't feel significant 
I might ask sin to save me from my feelings of insignificance. I might feel lonely. I might ask sin to save me from my feelings of loneliness. I might feel or be broke or whatever. It's very, very easy to ask sin to save us. When we find ourselves down a path of sin, it's very easy to kind of do the, well, just one more. If I just sin, if I got I to gotta get back on the right ramp, I got to get on the on-ramp to God's will, but I, need, I just need three or four or five more sins uh, correctly, and then I can ease back on there and no one will know. I just have to deceive my parents a little longer. My spouse for a bit more. I just got to finish this one deal this way, this one job this way, and then, right? But sin's a, it's a terrible on-ramp. We're not, we can't use sin to get back on the path God wants us on. And that sounds so, like, overly obvious. But I don't know about you. But I have... I've asked sin to do for me at times what, the, what my Savior wants to do for me, but he can't do it at the same time. So sin makes a lot. There's no better time to confess and to repent than right now. That's what I think we learn from Rena and Bika. Beware of anxiety and the perceived problem. Be careful with the will. Look what God allowed theology. And finally, sin makes a terrible parachute. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we are a sinful people who have made all of these mistakes. Uh, God, thank you for, for teaching us about them because they're, the teaching is for our good. Thank you that your opinion of us is still founded in what Christ did on our behalf. But God, we don't we don't want to be saved by the Savior and yet walk with our sin. We want to be saved by the Savior and then walk with the one who saved us from that stuff. It's better for us. It's how we flourish. So God, help us to um, embrace the things that stir up in us our affections for you, to see those things as our blessings God, help us to avoid uh, being controlled by our anxiety and, our, and our, our scenario generators. And God, make confession and repentance our normal response to sin rather than uh, figuring out how to, to sin a few more sins before we go straight later. And God, thank you for teaching us about this because it's for our good. We love you, our Savior. In your name we pray. Amen. Stand up and let's finish our time together.